Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for February 27th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to dive into a bunch of news, including The Last of Us movie, M. Night Shyamalan goes to Apple, a shocking amount of original content coming to Netflix, uh, a Silver Surfer movie, Mark Miller on the failure of DC movies, in a wrinkle in time early gets some early buzz we'll talk about that and we will also have a water cooler segment this is peter Shada, and joining me on today's podcast is slash home weekend editor brad omen hey that's me and slash home senior writer ben pearson hey what's going on slash home writer why trend buoy hey everyone and chris evangelista hi <laughs> okay, let's get into the water cooler, guys. Okay, guys, before we get into the news, let's uh, join me by this virtual water cooler over here in the corner uh, to talk about what we've been up to. Uh, ben, I heard that you were up to some in- interesting things over the weekend. Yeah, uh, last Thursday night, I actually had the chance to attend the world premiere of a new show on USA called Unsolved. I have no idea how I got on this press list because I don't really watch any TV shows on USA, but apparently I'm on somebody's list somewhere in some PR firm, and they sent me an invite, and they're like, hey, do you want to go to the world premiere of Unsolved, which is a an anthology series that's a true crime series, and the first season is all about um, basically the murders of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. And uh, they're like, yeah, this is going to be held at the Avalon Theater in Hollywood, which is walking distance from my apartment. So I was like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll go to that. Why not? I have never heard of this show before. I don't know a damn thing about it, but sure, I'll wander over and check this out. And uh, the show, I mean, it's a, it's a USA show, so you can kind of feel that in the production value and everything. But it's like relatively well acted. Uh, Josh Dumel and uh, Jimmy Simpson play cops in the show. And um, it's interesting because it's sort of, uh, it's like true detective in in the way that it's laid out in, uh, in structure. So Josh Dumel plays... Uh, a cop in the modern times in, in, I don't remember exactly what year, maybe it's actually, it's like 2006 or something like that. And then he is, he's tasked with 
um, solving the murders of Tupac and Biggie, basically. And he has to reopen the investigation. And Bokeem Woodbine is in it as well. So he sort of gets roped in with Josh Jamel's character. And they uh, try to siphon, you know, siphon through all these facts and all and, and speculation and all this craziness about what actually happened to Tupac and Biggie. These obviously like monumental rappers of the 90s and then the jimmy simpson plotline actually takes place during like 1996 or, or the mid 90s right around the time that these two uh were killed and so he plays a cop on the lapd who um is trying to decide whether or not the lapd actually had something to do with their murders there's a ton of uh conspiracy theories about what actually happened to both of these guys and I'm not sure how the show is going to, uh, you know, where it's going to ultimately come down on this. I know that the series is based on um, a book that was written by the lead investigator of the case. So I don't know if he has some like, you know, dynamite ending that he's just been waiting to reveal in this book or if he's going to blow the thing wide open or if the show is just so, just going to sort of like a. Uh, putter to an end um but it sounds like maybe a cool concept for a show like an unsolved crimes and each season taking on a different kind of thing i should also mention that uh <laughs> that buster rhymes and bone thugs and harmony were both there and performed live after the the screening so that was pretty amazing uh and, and i mean like that's one of those things that sort of only happens in hollywood like you wander down to a, a world premiere and buster rhymes is there rapping on stage 10 feet away from you so uh yeah i just wanted to throw a quick shout out it's called Unsolved. Season one is The Murders of Tupac and the Notorious B.I.G. And that uh, actually premieres on USA tomorrow, February 27th, 2018. Sounds like the, it's their version of American Crime Story, uh, the FX. Yeah, series. and it's from the same um, the same director, actually, who, who won an Emmy for his work on American Crime Story. So uh, it definitely has that vibe to it. I think you're being a little too harsh on USA Network. Uh, they've had some good shows recently. They've had, uh, obviously, Mr. Robo. Uh, yeah, Mr. Robot and um, Suits is actually pr- surprisingly good. Um, well, it's not a bad show. It's just that you can tell that they're limited on a budget level. You know, it sort of feels like a, a lower, but, you know, it, they yeah. don't have $100 million to make this show. Is That's all I meant by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Well, uh, today I decided to go out for my lunch and uh, be unhealthy and get some McDonald's, but with a very specific goal in mind. Because today, McDonald's finally brought back their now-famous Szechuan sauce, which Rick and Morty made such a big deal about in the third season premiere last April. And McDonald's brought some of it back last fall in this big limited edition, uh, limited promotion where they uh, were supposed to have some sauce available at select McDonald's locations. But because Rick and Morty fans uh, are apparently larger in numbers than McDonald's had anticipated, it was a huge clusterfuck and... That basically they didn't have enough sauce and fans were pissed and there were even some like cops called at various locations because of how mad they were and so mcdonald's was like our bad sorry about that uh but we promise we'll bring it back in plenty of supply sometime uh, before winter is over and getting in just under the wire today they finally brought it back officially at mcdonald's all across the united states so if you want some Szechuan sauce, you can go to McDonald's and get some chicken nuggets and uh, ask for the Szechuan sauce, and they'll give it to you. So I got that today, and uh, it's pretty tasty. It's kind of it's basically uh, soy sauce with like a little bit of honey in it. it has it has a little bit of sweetness uh, with the saltiness. Um, I had never tried the original version when it was out in 1998, 
uh, with the Mulan cross promotion, so I don't have a basis for comparison. But I had it with some chicken nuggets today, and it was pretty tasty. Hmm. Uh, I have also not had that yet, so uh, maybe I'll have to check that out uh, one of these days when I'm when I'm uh, cheating on my diet. Uh, but over also, the... hey, by the way, real quick too, because I know we're spending most of this uh, podcast talking about Annihilation. Real quick. I think that we should take some time to acknowledge the other uh, major release this past weekend because I also saw it, which is Game Night. And I just want to make sure that if you are on the fence about seeing it, you should go out of your way to see it because it, it is surprisingly great. A smart script, very fun, very entertaining, and ex- more exciting than some blockbuster action movies. I also saw Game Night because of uh, Movie Pass. Um, uh, you know, it was a, a film I wanted to see because I'm a big tabletop gamer. Although in this uh, movie, people are playing the game of life at game nights. I, I just don't understand. I don't think anybody's actually doing that in reality, even like, you know, general people in Midwest. Um, but, wait, 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 are you saying what Midwest are the only simpletons who play board games like the game of life? No, I'm saying even them do not play the g- game of life at a board game. Are we all the game of life? <laughs> Yes, uh, we'll we'll get into interpretations later on in the, our annihilation uh, discussion. But um, no, uh, I, I I think it's the fact that like no one, I think people are getting to these gatherings and playing. You know, so, some of the party games that they're playing in the thing, not the game of life. No one's playing the game of life. Only little kids are playing the game of life. I'll bet some people play the game of life. Okay, anyways, that's the most unbelievable part of this movie. Uh, I love Jesse Plemons in this movie. It, it, it is a great movie. You should go check it out. I, I'm not a usually uh, you know, a big comedy guy, um, but this uh, was thoroughly entertaining. There is a one-shot sequence, you know, quote-unquote one-shot sequence, which uh, rivals the uh, Ryan Coogler uh, casino sequence in Black Panther. Uh, it's just a lot of fun, and uh, you know it, it's disposable entertainment, but it's 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 a it's it's worth your time, for sure. Uh, but also over the weekend, I did uh, get to see a few episodes of the Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, have any of you watched the show? Nope. Nope. I've seen it. I really like it. Yeah, Chris. Mm-hmm. It's. No, I have yet to see this. I've heard really good things about it. I just have not seen it. I'm shocked that pe- more people haven't seen this. I'm shocked that Brad has not seen this. Uh, this this show won two Golden Globes. It uh, was created by Amy Sherman, who created uh, a bunch of things, including uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, but it's getting a lot of praise, and it's about a housewife in the 1950s in New York who decides to become a stand-up comic. And that's why I think, Brad, this sh- you should be watching this show. This is, like, totally for you. Um, I do want to, especially ever since it won the Golden Globe. I just haven't taken the time to sit and watch it yet. Yeah, the performances are, are all great. It's just uh, fun, funny. It's it just the production value is just so fantastic. You would think it being an Amazon show uh, that, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to do this, like, period New York stuff right but it it looks fantastic and uh they even have some cameos from like uh or i don't want to say cameos uh so, some characters in the show are famous comedians that she encounters uh which is actually kind of an interesting way to go about it uh, i'm only three episodes in so i can't make a a broad statement about uh if i love this show yet but the the pilot is fantastic everybody should check out at least the pilot um it, it you know it kind of has some Mad Men vibes, but uh, definitely has um, 
you know, the dialogue of uh, Amy Sherman, like what she did in Gilmore Girls, it's definitely felt there. Uh, HD, you, you saw the whole season? Yes, I've seen the whole season. Um, I really like it. It does start off a little bit sluggish because the first pilot, the pilot is so good and it's so fast paced and zippy, but then they have to slow it down for another, I think, eight episodes. So then the middle gets a little bit slow, but it, it's really fun. I really like the characters and uh, the dialogue is just, it's so like, yeah, fast paced and very snappy in the vein of Amy Sherman Palladino. So yeah, it's it's great. The character of um, Mrs. Maisel herself is really interesting and something that you don't usually, usually see in a lot of period pieces of that era too. So I, I really enjoy it. I've seen a lot of people compare her to like the female Don Draper and I could draw that comparison too because she's not amoral but is definitely extremely flawed and gray and really funny in that regard yeah and i love the wackiness of the father i don't know it's just you should check it out uh, especially you brad um ht it was it's your birthday today it is happy it's birthday, my birthday, birthday today. HT. Happy birthday. thanks yeah i turned 26 today and i celebrated a little bit over the weekend, but not too much because I'm a little sick. So I only went to um, a nice brunch with my mom at this place called Fiola Mare in Georgetown, uh, which is uh, where they filmed The Exorcist. So that's cool. Um, so we just went there and I got free champagne and we went to see Annihilation. So it was a nice time. Uh, I really like Annihilation and that'll be a good way to dive into uh, the rest of the, the conversation, of course, uh, after Chris speaks his part but yeah um pretty pretty low-key birthday nothing much to celebrate because you know 26 is the year that you get off your parents health care so that's always really fun too oh so, really yeah. 26 i didn't realize it was mm-hmm. that late crazy yeah it's, it's up until 26 per obamacare now oh okay cool um chris what have you been up to uh, so Hulu uh, added ER, the entire series of ER, to their streaming lineup. And Hulu was the one service I did not have. And uh, my wife and I, we were out of shows to watch. So I said, you know, screw it. I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to sign up for Hulu. And we did. So we've been uh, plowing through ER. Uh, and it's great. I uh, I only saw bits and pieces of ER when it originally aired in the, the 90s, which feels uh hundreds of years ago now but is a little less than that but um are are the early episodes presented in standard definition uh it's filling up my whole screen so i I haven't been able to tell i'm I'm pretty sure they are cropping here and there but it's not noticeable but uh beyond that it's the show holds up i mean uh you know the fashion and stuff is very 90s but since it's set in a hospital and they're dealing with hospital stuff it's not like full of you know, dated references to pop culture. It's all, you know, medical talk. So it feels really current. It doesn't feel as dated as I thought it might. And uh, I'm really enjoying watching it. See, I, I wouldn't have pictured you as someone who would want to do a deep dive into ER. Why not? You don't think I, uh, I'm, I'm down with ER? What's that about? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It just, it seems like it is, it is more of a, um, you know, I've never seen ER, so I can't make any judgments. But I, I just feel like ER is like, isn't it like a procedural? It's kind of like a, a disposable, fun show. It is, but it's also it's really well made, especially for that time when a lot of TV was point and shoot. Like this show, it, it's constantly moving. The camera is always moving, 
And I also like a good procedural now and then. I like watching a show where I can quote unquote turn off my mind, even though I hate that phrase. But you know, a lot of stuff I watch, I watch for work. So I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm literally watching it to work. And so it's nice to just kick back and watch something that I don't have to take notes during. Yeah, for sure. I um I keep on putting off diving into West Wing. It's a show I, I've never seen, but, uh, you know, I tried watching it once and it's in standard definition and it just bugs the hell out of me to, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, those walking talk, uh, steady cam shots, it, 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 I, I guess that's probably what you're talking about in ERs of uh, it being kind of more cinematic. Like yeah, that. it is like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you should check out West Wing. It's great. And it'll yeah. make uh, the 2018 political climate seem even more depressing. So if you're in the mood for that. <laughs> oh, fun. Okay, so first up in the news, uh, we've been talking about The Last of Us movie. They're making a movie based on the hit video game, The Last of Us. Uh, Apparently, one of the creators does not want this video game to actually become a movie. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so Neil Druckmann, who is the writer and co-director of the 2013 video game The Last of Us, uh, actually was brought on to write the screenplay for a movie version. And at this year's Dice Summit in Las Vegas, he was actually interviewed by uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane director Dan Trachtenberg on a stage in front of this big crowd. And he was asked to provide some updates on a couple of movie adaptations that Naughty Dog, the company that he works for, has in the works. So one of those is an Uncharted movie, which we know is still in the process of of getting made. And the other one is the Last of Us movie. And his uh, response to a question about an update there was pretty fascinating. He said, I worked on the script for the Last of Us film, which was a direct adaptation. And now having some separation from it, I look back and I'm like, I don't want that movie to be made. Maybe there's something that could be done in that world, either focusing on the characters or some other time. But for me, and I know for Naughty Dog and for a lot of our fans, Nolan North is Nathan Drake. Ashley Johnson is Ellie. Troy Baker is Joel. Those are some of the characters in those games. Uh, And it would be very disorienting to see someone else in that role. So that was his quote. And it seems like he, uh, I mean, it's really odd that a screenwriter would write a script for a movie and then actively publicly say that he does not want that movie to get made. But it seems like that's what Druckmann is is doing here. Uh, We know that he has actually butted heads with the studio, which was Sony, over the direction of the movie uh, as recently as last year. So we haven't really heard any updates as far as, you know, this film actually moving into production or anything like that. But it seems like there's a couple of disagreements behind the scenes about the direction that the the creatives want to take the film. Uh, Druckmann is definitely open to the idea of a movie taking place in the Last of Us world, but just the idea of a direct adaptation is something that he's not super excited about. It's interesting because, you know, Hollywood has still not gotten gotten the video game adaptation right. And maybe it is because, you know, most of the stories that are in these video games are kind of, you know, uh, products of those mediums. And, you know, when, when you kind of distill them down to, you know, an hour and 45 minutes on a big screen, you're basically just getting like the Cliff Notes version of that story. Um, I, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I'm wondering who's going to crack this uh, video game movie adaptation, uh, you know, problem and how are they going to crack it? Uh, but let's move on to their next story. And that is that M. Night Shyamalan will be creating a new TV series for Apple. Chris, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? 
Yeah, so Apple is trying to get in on that, you know, that sweet streaming action that, you know, Netflix has cornered the market there, but Apple wants in on it too. So they've they've been hiring a bunch of big names to help create original content for whatever their streaming platform is going to be. And now they've hired uh, M. Night Shyamalan will create a thriller TV series. Uh, there's no details on what it's going to be about. It's going to be 10 episodes long. Each episode is going to be a half hour. And he is going to direct the first episode. Uh, beyond that, we don't really know what it's going to be. But this is just yet another title in Apple's growing original content. Now, does it seem... Chris, you've been kind of following this in HD. I know you have been as well. Does it seem like Apple is doing things differently than what Netflix and Hulu and Amazon are doing? I mean, they're they're certainly attracting really big names. It seems like Apple has been getting the biggest names yet. I mean, they have amazing stories, which is going to have uh, Steven Spielberg as an executive producer. Um, they're going to have a series with Jennifer Aniston or Reese Witherspoon. These are really, you know, quote unquote, big names, whereas, you know, Netflix attracts big names, too, but they're not quite as big. So I don't know if it's because Apple has more money, maybe. Maybe that's why they're able to get bigger people. But beyond that, uh, it's it's really not clear. I mean, we still don't even know what their streaming service is going to be, like if it's going to be a whole new app or if it's going to be via iTunes. You know, it's still... The, you know, the details aren't really solid yet, so it's it's a little too early to tell. And uh, I still find it strange that, you know, we're moving into this next evolution of TV and, you know, we're still sticking to like, you know, let's do a 10 episode order of a half an hour shows like what, you know, we're no longer programming things in half an hour or one hour blocks on a TV schedule with advertising. Um, why don't we move, you know, this? this visual storytelling to a next evolution of whatever it's going to be. And um, I don't know what that is. I know like shows like the OA have done like variable uh, uh, show lengths. Like, you know, what, why, you know, put something into in a container that it, you know, was made for, you know, a different time. But um, I'm wondering if Apple is going to do anything differently. It looks so far, it looks like they're kind of just following uh, the status quo, but uh, let's move on to Netflix. Uh, today news broke that Netflix is going to release 700 original movies and TV shows this year. HT, that that has to be that has to be a wrong number, right? Nope, you heard that right. So that number comes from Netflix CFO David Wells, who is speaking at the Morgan Stanley Technology Media and Telecom Conference. This is um, it sounds a little bit implausible, but it actually is somewhat in line with the rapidly escalating rate that Netflix has been producing and acquiring original content since 2016. So in 2016, they spent upwards of $3 billion for an estimated 126 TV shows and various other films and comedy specials. We don't know the exact number for that. Um, and then in 2017, they spent upwards of $6 billion. And um, we know that in March of this year, they, debut they debuted a total of 54 original TV shows and movies just in March alone. So adding that all together, I'm not going to do the math for you because math is not my strong suit. That's <laughs> why I'm not a mathematician. Um, it comes to about 600 or 700 original films and TV series. And it's... And that includes uh, like comedy specials. And yeah, comedy specials, shorts, other such things, documentaries. Um, and it's more... They spent $8 billion um, 
on 2018 uh, original content, uh, which is more than any streaming service has spent on non-sports content and far more than any traditional TV media companies, according to uh, Recode. So Netflix is in it to win it. They like, like Chris said earlier, they've cornered this market and they're not letting go. Okay, so we, we spent you know, an hour and a half in our virtual newsroom trying to get to the bottom of this because we didn't believe this number, but we came to the to the realization that Netflix released 54 original TV shows and movies in March, or I guess uh, next month, uh, 54 in that month alone. So that kind of adds up to that 700 number. Um, you know, with Netflix only growing bigger and bigger, you know, they're, they're spending $8 billion in content this year. Uh, next year, I'm assuming they're probably going to go up another two or three billion as they have been. So that's going to be like 10 or 11 billion. That'll be what a thousand new original programs and movies. Uh, at what point does that become too much for anybody to watch? Uh, Brad, do you have the time for this? Um, <laughs> gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm using my abacus here, but I'm coming up short. Uh, no, I mean, at the end of the day, like, we're, there's a lot of content being produced, sure, but, like, but it's, you know, different strokes for different folks kinds of things. Like, no one's going to sit and try and watch everything that they're churning out. You're going to f- find what you like and what fits, you know. Um, Netflix is churning out anything and everything now from talk shows to, you know, reality programming to documentaries, to comedy specials, all that stuff. So, you know, plenty of people don't give a damn about reality TV. You know, some people don't really dig, you know, watching a bunch of stand-up specials. So it's the, it's really just about, about producing the most amount of content to make the most amount of people happy. Yeah, and it, it, if you look at the numbers, I, I know I don't want to bother HD with the math, but if you divide 700 by 2, that's 350, which is almost the amount of days there are in a year, which means that if I'm doing my math correctly, they, they are releasing, on average, two new original productions a day. Uh, when you think about it, you go on cable or TV, there's so many different programs all over the place. So it's, it's really not that many. If you think about like the options that we actually have on, uh, you know, even a regular network that, you know, probably has a couple different shows each night that is, that are new, um, comic book writer, creator, uh, Mark Miller, uh, you know, he's very outspoken. Recently, he made some comments about how DC movies aren't working because the characters outside of Batman uh, aren't cinematic. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What did he say? Yeah, I'm just going to read his quote here because it's it's kind of crazy. So he says uh, he was asked specifically why the Warner Brothers and DC movies, you know, what are they doing wrong with their comic book adaptations? And his response was, I think it's really simple. The characters aren't cinematic. And I say this is a massive DC fan who much prefers their characters to Marvel's. Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman are some of my favorites, but I think these characters, with the exception of Batman, they aren't based around their secret identity. They're based around their superpower, whereas the Marvel characters tend to be based around the personality of Matt Murdock or Peter Parker or the individual X-Men. It's all about the character. DC, outside of Batman, is not about the character. With Batman, you can understand him. You can worry about him. But someone like Green Lantern, he has this ring that allows him to create 3D physical manifestations in green plasma with the thoughts in his head, but he's allergic to the color yellow. How do you make a movie with that? In 1952, that made perfect sense, but now the audience has no idea what that's all about. People will slam me for this, but I think the evidence is there. We've seen great directors, great writers, and great actors, tons of money thrown at them, but these films aren't working. 
I think they are all too far away from when they were created. Something feels a little old about them. Kids look at these characters and they don't feel that cool. Even Superman. I love Superman, but he belongs to an America that doesn't exist anymore. He represents 20th century America, and I think he peaked then. So that was his full quote. There's a lot to chew on there, but I, honestly, I think he's kind of full of shit here. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, I really think that saying these characters aren't cinematic is a really bizarre thing to say because not only have they been the focus of a bunch of major Hollywood adaptations already, sort of proving the idea that they are cinematic, but they're the very existence of these characters. They are in the DC stable. They are larger than life figures who are these aspirational warriors who show us the best versions of who we can be. We've talked about this on the podcast before. That is an inherently cinematic idea. And People like Richard Donner and Tim Burton and Patty Jenkins and Christopher Nolan have, you know, proven over and over and over again that these are cinematic characters. It's not that the characters have anything wrong with them. Maybe the specific stories that are being told about these characters could use a little bit of work. And obviously things would be much easier if there weren't all these behind the scenes struggles that are going on with and, and plaguing a lot of these these DC films. But it's it's not the fault of the characters. It's the fault of the storytellers who don't know what to do with them. And honestly, hearing his quote about Superman, I would honestly like to see that take on Superman on the big screen. You know, see like an older Superman. I don't think we've seen that, uh, you know, in on TV or movies, you know, that is now growing up in America today. And I guess it's kind of the Captain America take that Marvel's doing. But, you know, how that, you know kind of wears on him and him trying to do the good thing where you know everybody oh no uh, i think i i think there is a cinematic take for superman yeah and and chris you actually wrote a pretty good piece earlier last year about how justice league a movie how even a movie like justice league which had so many problems managed to get superman right do you want to weigh in on this yeah um <laughs> it's a very strange thing to say that superman isn't cinematic i don't know how you could even think that because it's there's you know like you said ben there's there's already proof that you can make superman cinematic i mean and yeah like i said in that piece justice league which is a bad movie don't get me wrong that movie stinks gets starts to get superman right and that was like the one thing i really liked about that film is that it it stopped making superman this sort of dour guy who regrets helping people all the time and he actually likes his job in justice league and that's how you that's how you do superman you you make him this optimistic force in an unoptimistic time and i mean that you know i just feel like that plot alone writes itself especially now in the hellscape that is 2018 people need optimism so you could definitely do something with that but you know what do i know i'm not a very wealthy comic book writer so maybe i'm wrong (laughs) You know what? You always have to look at the source. You know, when we hear, you know, someone from a movie say how great it is, you know, you got to trust that. You know, does that source have any investment in that? Mark Miller, you know, has a whole comic book label uh, producing all these comic book uh, properties that are actually being made into TVs and films with an exclusive deal. Actually, they're owned by Netflix now. Right. So, um, you know, he's basically he's the competitor. (laughs) <laughs> to DC, so of course he's going to say these things. Uh, I, I um, that that's the way I'm, I'm going to spin it. Um, <laughs> as much as I I I always like listening to what Mark has to say because he always has an interesting take and he is a smart guy. But I I do think that uh, 
you know, he uh, he does have some financial gain in, in this uh, in, in this uh, matter. But let's move on to from DC to Marvel. And news broke today that Fox is developing a Silver Surfer movie with writer Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, Brad, you wrote this up for today. What do we know? Indeed, uh, despite the fact that uh, Fox is in the throes of potentially being purchased by Disney, a deal that is still in the midst of being finalized and worked upon, it appears 20th Century Fox is not holding anything back when it comes to developing any Marvel Comics properties for the big screen, and that includes spinning off uh, the Silver Surfer character who originated in Fantastic Four comics into his own movie. Um, This is a character who has only made the big screen so far in Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, the famously awful sequel um, that, you know, used the character really only as a a messenger for Galactus to create uh, chaos on the planet. And now it seems like the character might get uh, his due diligence on the big screen with a movie written by uh, comic writer Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, he's a very uh, respected comic book writer. He's been behind um, hits like Runaways, Why the Last Man, uh, most recently Saga. He's also good on the TV side of things. He worked on Lost and Under the Dome. Uh, he's very much a favorite writer among uh, geek fans. So having him tackle a property like this is fairly interesting. But at the same time, I'm just not really sure that a Silver Surfer is like the best thing for Fox to do to expand their character roster of Marvel movies, especially when they haven't even gotten Fantastic Four right yet. Uh, I'm not saying Silver Surfer necessarily needs Fantastic Four to survive, but introducing a character like this, who is still relatively obscure when it comes to general audiences, uh, I don't know, I just feel like it requires a, a bit more of a, uh introduction that makes more sense, if, if you will. But, you know, well, like I said, with somebody like Brian K. Vaughn on board, maybe there's a chance this could work. At the very least, it can't be worse than how he was used in Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. So, yeah, It does kind of seem like almost like doing a Venom movie with those Spider-Man. Um, but, uh, you know, Silver Surfer was a huge, iconic uh, comic book character in the 90s, I think. Uh, but I don't think, you know... Our own Jacob Hall uh, said that apparently there's a recent comic book run um, that looks like it's around 2014... That was really good. Uh, I guess it was written by Dan Slott, and it follows Silver Surfer and as he, he meets a woman uh, from Earth, and I guess they traverse the galaxy together and go on adventures. Apparently, uh, he, he told me that um, he said it's a really good run for that character, so maybe there's an interesting story to be told there. I don't know. I ju- I'm just now hearing Mark Miller's voice in my head telling me how Silver Surfer is an, not a cinematic character, and uh, I'm, I'm finding myself agreeing with him. But I, I love Brian K. Vaughn. So, See, when uh, I hear Mark Miller's voice in my head, I just get annoyed because I want Mark Miller to shut up. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our last and final story, and that is uh, A Wrinkle in Time screened for Junket Press uh Last week and this week, uh, and the first early buzz came as the world premiere happened. HT, please tell me it's good. I'm afraid not, Peter, which is something that's ultimately super disappointing for me, too, because I've been looking forward to this film uh, for years now. And apparently it's a really lavish, really visually stunning film, but the story itself is... uh, doesn't quite hit the mark. Um, So a lot of the reactions that we're getting that are positive are actually from uh, 
industry insiders, which is really interesting. And only a couple positive reactions come from critics. Um, one from uh, the Black Girl Nerds founder, Jamie Broadnax, who says, the visual effects were groundbreaking and I love the for, for the performances from these actors, kids and adults will love and appreciate this film. But uh, the critics have actually remained somewhat silent in regards to this movie. The social media embargo broke last night, and there's been almost radio silence from a lot of film critics on Twitter, which has been which is a little strange for a major Disney release like this. Um, but a couple of things that we've heard from critics are are pretty negative. Um, one from Connor Schwartfeger from. Uh, Cinema Blend is, he says that Wrinkle in Time is visually ambitious and very, very faithful to the source material, but it's all over the place and doesn't quite land the themes of the books. Um, and Chris Pine, he says, is a standout, and Ava DuVernay d- deserves credit for what she does, but the novel itself was very, was nearly unfilmable. So we're getting mixed reactions at best and sort of negative, uh, depressing reactions at worst. So it's, it's a little bit uh, unfortunate. We don't know um, what the actual reviews are saying yet. That doesn't hit until March 7th, which is two days before the film's release. But um, And apparently I've heard that some people from Press Junkins are, aren't being, are being told to not release their social media um, reactions. So I think that's a little confusing as well. Um, I think Ben went to uh, a junket but was told not to release his reaction. Yeah, it was weird. Um, when we were we saw the the screening because I got to interview uh, Jennifer Lee, who wrote the movie, and Gugu Mbatha Ra, who plays uh, Meg Murray's mother in the film, and they told us that basically that we weren't allowed to tweet any reactions about the movie. We could say that we saw it and that was it. And then they mentioned that the review embargo date was like she said a couple days before the film came out, but. Then all of a sudden I saw a couple people, you know, break this social media embargo late last night. So I'm, I'm not sure if there were different rules from for different people. You know, may, maybe the people who saw the world premiere could say something and other people can't. I, I still don't really know exactly what I am and am not allowed to say about the movie. But I guess because some opinions are already out there, I'm, you know, kind of OK with giving you guys like some loose thoughts about the film. Um, I am not crazy about the book. Uh, but I think this movie does about as good a job as possible in adapting the book. And I think the idea that it's sort of unfilmable is, is uh, a pretty fair criticism. There's, there's a lot going on here. And I think the performances are almost all across the board, really, really good. Um, Storm Reed is really great. She's the young uh, black actress who plays the, the heroine Meg Murray, um, I was not crazy about Reese Witherspoon. She was like the one person in the whole cast that I wasn't really um, a fan of. And then also this character, uh, Charles Wallace, who's the younger brother of the main girl, is one of the most annoying characters I've come across uh, in in literary history. He's like one of these, these uh, you know, savant children who's way more mature than, you know, he's like five years old or something, but he speaks you know, as if he's 35 and it's just a super annoying trope that you've seen over and over again. It definitely was not as big of a deal in the novel because that came out in like 1962 or something. So that had not been um, established uh, as as much. But um, yeah, this, this movie, it's visually, there's a lot going on and Ava DuVernay does a really great job with what she has, but I just don't think that, 
yeah, this this one does sort of miss the mark, unfortunately. That is so disappointing, and it's also disappointing that um. I mean, obviously, you were told not to do, you know, so there was this weird confusion with the social embargo, but it seems like, a, you know, a lot of critics are being quiet that probably weren't told. I don't know. Maybe I'm just assuming. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being cynical here. And, you know, people want this movie and want Ava to do well. And I, I, maybe I'm thinking that they're being quiet uh, because they don't want to say bad things. Um, hmm. That could be. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot riding on this movie. It's, you know, Ava DuVernay is the first black woman to have or a first woman, period, I think, to have a budget that's over one hundred million dollars. So, yeah, there's it's one of those movies that you really hope does well and performs well. So it it sort of reinforces the idea that uh, that women can direct big budget movies. You know, it's one of those movies like Ghostbusters a couple of years ago where it's like there's more on this movie than just the film itself um, from a cultural perspective. So yeah, it's unfortunate that the the film is not uh, terrific. I mean, it's fine. It, it's, it's okay. I, I would not call it a bad movie, um, but it just, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't shine in the way that I think it, it, it could. Okay. Well, we will hear more from you later when you're allowed to talk about it uh, in a greater depth. Uh, but that does it for today's edition of slash film daily HT. Where can people find more of your work online? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBui. Ben, where can we find you? Track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears, and I'm also at SlashFilm.com every day. Chris, where can people find you? Also SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at SeaEvangelista413. Brad, tell us about your podcast. Uh, it's on iTunes. It's called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, and you can listen to it and rate it five stars if you love it as much as I do. And you can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Yeah, when you're, when you're on iTunes, go over to the Slash Film Daily page and give us a five-star review and give us a review as well. Uh, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question, comment, concern, feedback, please send it to peter at slashfilm.com, and we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>